All right. Well, I'm going to share a couple of things here just initially before we get into looking at water sources and irrigation and so forth. We'll have a look at what uh, God says about uh, his, his way of irrigating. And I notice you're getting some nice rain through here. I don't know if that's normal all the time, but... Yeah, we've um, been getting a lot through the nights. Yeah, that's yeah. neat. New Zealand, you know, <coughs> it's so beautiful and green and we get lots of rain. Although I have noticed in the last uh, decade of... You know, each time I go back to New Zealand, they've had some droughts, and for the first time in my life, I've seen brown, dry paddocks, you know, which I'd never seen before. So things are changing. But um, notice what it says here in Deuteronomy 11, 11 through 17. Of course, this is talking about the promised land um, that the uh, Israelites were going towards. It says, But the land which you cross over to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water from the rain of heaven a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning of the year to the very end of the year. And it shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain that you may gather in your grain, your new wine and your oil. Pretty amazing to... Uh, Think about what it was like. It's not like that today, is it? I don't know if you've seen much about Israel. Actually, uh, over there in Israel, they're some of the world's leading experts in utilizing water efficiently because they have such a scarcity of it and they have to use it very, very wisely because they're not, the conditions are not like we, we just read. And I think around the world we're seeing uh, conditions, water is becoming scarcer, and uh, especially where, where I'm uh, in California. You know, the aquifers are getting lower. We've had droughts, you know, for, for decades. It, the drought has broken in California now, but um, just water is, is, is becoming quite a valuable commodity. The price for water is increasing um, and uh, actually driving through um, the valley of California from northern to southern. It's interesting that um, when they were starting to restrict water use, um, you see these farms and all these orchards and trees just drying up and dying, you know, because they didn't have water and it was too expensive or there was something uh, that was preventing them get the, getting the water. And um, so it's a really, really important part. I love this promise in the Bible here. It talks about God. It says, you visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain for so you have prepared it. You water its ridges abundantly. You settle its furrows. You make it soft with showers. You bless its growth. You crown the year with goodness and your paths drip with abundance. Wouldn't it be amazing if that's the way it was? Um, you know, I have to think about why are the conditions not like that anymore? And, you know, uh, during the time of Elijah, Israel was experiencing a drought, right? And... Um, and did God's people who were faithful, the 7,000 that didn't bow their knee to, to Baal, did they suffer because of the drought? Or did God just come over their little property and just rain, you know, on their properties and, and, and the ones who were unfaithful didn't get it? What about Elijah? What happened to him? Did he have to, he went to the, book, the brook uh, Kid, Kidron and uh, he was drinking, but what happened to that brook? It dried up, right? Water was scarce. The whole nation, the faithful and the unfaithful, suffered under the same conditions. And so I think in, in, in the conditions that we are in this world now, 
you know, the more wicked man becomes, God's natural resources are becoming more and more scarce and um, God's people suffer along with everybody else as, as uh, these resources are not so available. Uh, I love this promise here that uh, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 45 and 46. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So even though we're in uh, the conditions of the world, uh, the wicked world now, God still sends rain, doesn't he? He didn't dry it up completely. He still sends rain to us. And he's good to those who don't appreciate it and those who do. He's, he's not partial. Um, so I come from New Zealand. This is the area where I... Uh, used to live and uh, it's beautiful and green and we really don't have to worry about water too much. Um, you can have a garden, you can plant your, your veggies and things out and they'll survive without having to have any sprinkler or anything, you know, just because the rain, the clouds come over and, you know, the native name for New Zealand is Aotearoa, which means land of the long white cloud. And uh, so, you know, rain is very frequent and common and, and the country stays pretty green most of the time. Um, so irrigation was n not something that, that I ever thought much about and um, a lot of people there just, you know, plant out their trees and orchard and never water them because God waters them. <laughs> but uh, then I moved to California and uh, we have five months of no rain uh, through the summer. And um, so the, the conditions are very, very dry. The, the ground gets dry down deep, you know, and um, we have to... Um, we have to have an alternative form of uh, watering. And uh, most of the watering in, in California in the San Joaquin Valley and the, you know, it's, it's a huge agricultural area that uh, supplies, I've heard a figure of something like 10% of the world's food, it's huge. And, um, but they rely on the uh, snow melt from up in the mountains. There's a mountain range that goes along, you know, the edge of uh, California right up to Northern California. And they have these big aquifers that the snow melt gets, you know, channeled down and then distributed right through the valley to the farmers. And um, so we're very dependent on that snow melt. And during the drought years, the thing, you know, we're used to having five months of no rain. So that's not a drought. The winter droughts were the ones that really affected us because there wasn't the snow build up in the, in the mountains to melt and then supply the, the water. Um, so uh, Rod asked me to uh, cover kind of if you're thinking about moving the country and you're choosing a property, what are the <coughs> things that you need to be thinking about when it comes to your water supply? So uh, here are some of the things that I would suggest uh, making a list when you look at uh, properties or if you have a property, I guess it, it does, it's not relevant, but is there a water source there? Like is there a creek, a river or... You know, do they have a well on the property? What, what sort of water sources are there? Or if there's nothing, then you have to consider, is it possible to dig a well uh, and get water and so on? And if there is water, what is the quality of the water? Because when you're growing food, if the pH of the water is, you know, too high or there's issues with, um, uh, with the water, that can drastically affect your garden. It can mess up the chemistry in the, in the um, soil. 
So having a, a, a test and seeing what the pH is, what the sodium levels, I don't know if you have issues here with sodium levels in water in some places, but in the states, definitely in some of the drier uh, states like New Mexico, Arizona and, and so on, they have issues with sodium levels being high in their water and in the ground. And so um, it's worthwhile to uh, have the water tested. Now, um, what volume of water do you need? If you're going to put a well in, how much water, what volume should that well be able to produce? Um, what is the cost to secure the water supply, including storage, if, if necessary? So uh, it's not just the, you know, the price of a property that you have to think about, it's the price of what does it cost to get the water supply. And it can be very expensive if, if, if there's not a, a supply already there. And then uh, one thing that can be very helpful is to check around with neighbours and find out what their experience is, how, what do they do for their water and, and uh, you know, mine the knowledge that they have. Uh, that would be very, very helpful. So what amount of water do you need uh, to be able to survive? So here's a list. Uh, it's in gallons. Sorry about that. Just basically times it by four and you'll be pretty close if you want litres. Um, but a, you know, each person in a household is probably going to use somewhere between 20 and 40 gallons or you could say 80 to, um, what would that be, uh, 320 litres a day. Um, taking a bath, shower, so on, there's all the, the amounts there. And then if you've got animals, if you've got a cow or, <laughs> or, or, or more than one cow, if you've got horses or chickens or sheep or the garden, you know, uses a lot. So you know, do, do the sum and figure out how much water you really need so that you can evaluate either the supply that's there when you buy a property or you can, um, when you put in your own well or, or, or another source, that you will have what you need. Because if you don't have water, food grows where water flows. If you don't have water, you're not going to be able to grow your food uh, successfully. You might not have more than what you need for yourself. Um, here is a suggested conditional purchase agreement. So if you're looking at a property and you really like it and it doesn't have a water supply and you know that a well needs to be put in, um, this is a suggested um, water I mean an agreement that you can have in your uh, contract that uh, may be a, a way of um, kind of like an insurance if you pay all this money for the property and then you have a well driller come in and they think they're going to find water but they drill 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 and it's not there and you're paying for every meter of drilling that they do and then they have to move to another spot it can get really really expensive so the the suggestion here is uh, to, to have this um, in the contract the seller make a diligent effort to locate and develop a year-round adequate water supply for the buyers needs on the property, if necessary, the seller shall drill a well to a maximum depth of whatever specifications. The water supply must have a year-round output of at least, and that would be based on what your calculations are, what your needs will be uh, per minute. Um, if the seller cannot locate and develop an adequate water supply, then this agreement shall be terminated immediately, and all funds deposited and paid by the buyer shall be returned immediately, and the buyer shall suffer no further liability under this agreement. So this is just a little safeguard if you don't have water available on a property that you really like and you, you want to buy it. Um, 
The other thing is uh, the seller may say, well, that's going to cost me a lot of money, but you could say, well, I'll give you X amount, you know, whatever your budget is, I'll give you X amount extra as long as you, you know, take care of it. And if they think it's doable, then they take the risk uh, that if it doesn't work out, they actually pay it and you don't pay it. Um, so it's just a, just a way of safeguarding your resources, especially if they're limited. So here's an article um, that I found online that's it was really uh, summed up a lot of these items really well. It's called uh, Country Water Systems, What You Need to Know Before Buying Property. It's an old article from 1989 from the Mother Earth News, July, August issue. But um, it uh, really covers all the different things you should be thinking about. And it goes into more detail than I'm able to in the time that we have. So I'd recommend reading that. Um, so water sources, what water sources um, would you uh, be looking for? So surface waters, which include rivers, streams, creeks, ponds, springs, and cisterns. And a cistern is just a tank. I don't know if you use that term over here. I guess it's used in America more. Um, and then water um, is trapped underground in two types of areas. In aquifers, loose water-bearing materials such as gravel, sand, and clay, or in consolidated water-bearing rocks, notably limestone, uh, basalt, and sandstone. Uh, in many cases, surface water sources are excellent for irrigation, livestock, firefighting, ponds, and other uses, but cannot be utilized for drinking. Therefore, a well is often a necessity regardless of the presence of surface water. So just the fact that you've got a creek um, or a river or something that may not supply uh, your own, the water you need for personal use. Um, let's go back to that. Water witching. Do they do that over here? Take the stick or whatever? Divining. Divining. Um, I, actually, my wife and I were looking at property in New Zealand and we were, you know, um, looking at a lot of properties. We went to this one place and the, uh, the real estate agent, um, as we were leaving the property, he said, we were talking about a well and, and so on about water supply. And he said to me, you know, when we were driving onto the property, he said, I could feel the ley lines. Now, you know, I don't know uh, how credible that is, but he said, you know, when we were driving into the property, I can feel the ley lines. And I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, well, how do, you, uh, how do you know? He said, well, it's probably like an underground, you know, river or creek or something, and, and it creates a, an energy field. And, um, and he said, look, I'll stop and I'll show you. So we stopped, and he got out of the back of his thing. He had these two rods that um, I think they were copper, if I'm not uh, wrong, or they were brass, I can't remember. And then they had two sleeves, so they were about um, maybe... A, 100 millimeters or so, and then bent at right angles and came out probably uh, 400 or so millimeters or something like that. And uh, with the two copper sleeves on the, on the end, um, he had them out like that and he walked, and he walked you know, along the road where he thought it was, and then all of a sudden the, these two things went parallel to each other and pointed, you see, well, see that that's where the energy, that's where the, the flow of this. I don't know if there's anything to that or not. I said, hey, let me have a try of that. So he gave it to me and I walked and it did exactly the same thing. So I don't know. 
Um, but I found that uh, the US Geological Survey has concluded that not one scientifically conducted experiment using water witches to locate optimal sites for water well location has ever yielded conclusive reproducible support for water witches claims. So uh, take it for what it is. I think uh, there's maybe some hocus pocus involved with some of them, um, but there's probably some legitimate um, uh, physiological things going on that may be credible. Um, Freotophytes, you know what that is, uh, Steve? I just learned about it when I was researching for this. So a freotophyte is a type of tree that um, you know, feeds off the surface water or deep or puts roots down deep and finds like the aquifers and, 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 and it might be in a dry area where there's no water but you can see the trees surviving and um, so I'll just read this the, the description of it here it's a, a freatophyte is a deep whoops uh, rooted plant a plant that obtains a significant portion of the water that it needs from the phreatic zone the zone of saturation or the capillary fringe above the phreatic zone Freatophytes are plants that are supplied with surface water and often have their roots constantly in touch with moisture. A freatophyte is one that absorbs its water from a constant source on the ground. They can usually be found along streams where there is a steady flow of surface or groundwater in areas where the water table is near the surface. Now I don't know what kind of trees you'd have here. Um, I know in the States they have willows um, that grow, that would be one of these types of trees. Um, sometimes they grow where there's no stream and it's because they have gone to the underground aquifer. So when you're looking at property, you might, if you know what trees to look for, you might actually know, well, there's probably a water source there. Parajong trees is another one. Okay. We have over here. Yeah. And their roots go, they might be on like a, even a mountain. Yeah. Their roots have tapped right down through limestone. Yeah. And into moisture. So that, that's cool because that's an indication of where you might find a good source of water, you know, so when you're considering where to buy. Um, I found this about Australia, I just... <laughs> I tried to find out what kind of freatophytes would be over here and I found this here. It said freatophytes occur in the subtropical eucalyptus forests on the eastern coast of Australia, so that would be right here. They serve as, an, as indicators of the depth, of depth and salinity of the groundwater. For example, the licorice, do you know, you guys familiar with the licorice tree? No? Um, is an indicator of fresh water at depths of 5 to 10 meters and, uh, don't know how to pronounce that, Halostachys caspica, indicates salt water uh, at depths of 5 to 15 meters. Typical phreatophytes include many desert and semi-desert plants, for example, camel thorn, tamarisk and ac. Natherum. So I don't know, that's, that's just some information I found online that I thought might be re relevant to you since it was about Australia. But maybe becoming familiar with those trees will be helpful if you're looking for property. So we want to talk about the different systems, the water systems. Um, the cheapest type of system is a gravity flow system. That means that you would have to have a water source up on an elevated portion of land that you can tap into and it can gravity feed down to where you need it. Um, so the only materials needed to set up a gravity flow water system are a holding tank, which might be a spring box, lake, pond, or dammed up portion of a creek, the necessary pipe or hose, storage tanks, and various valves, faucets, and other hardware. This system is the cheapest and easiest to maintain because no pump is necessary. 
So really the only moving parts is water and water, you know, just continues to flow. Um, if you're not in, a, in an area where you have that, then you might have a lower um, source of water that you need to move to a higher uh, location. And uh, there's what's called ram pumps. And these pumps, and, and Bamford apparently is an Australian brand, um, so they're readily available to buy. Uh, if you have a source of water and, you, and it's flowing water that you can tap into, these ram pumps, basically the water uh, gets forced into a chamber that compresses air, a valve shuts, and then that, that compressed air then forces it through another valve that opens and, and pushes it up. So it can actually, even though it's coming from a short distance, it can push it uphill by many times greater than the distance that it's uh, the sources, where the source is located. Um, so they're worth checking out. Um, here you can see a kind of a, uh, a picture where there's, you know, a stream that obviously has a pool there and they've tapped into that and then with that ram pump and then pushes it up to a storage tank to the area where they, they have their uh, orchard or uh, garden set up. So that gives you an idea of how it can push it to a higher elevation. It could be that you just want to push it up onto a, a, a tank stand where your tank is up in the air where you can gravity feed you know, from that as well. A uh, cistern or a water tank. Uh, cisterns are large circular or rectangular storage tanks either completely open at the top to collect rainwater or open only enough to allow a pipe to enter and bring in water from roofs or fields. They are made of cement, wood, plastic or metal. Seems like nowadays uh, plastic is probably the most common type of uh, storage tank. Um, there's another type of tank, it's called a bladder tank. Do you, do you guys have them over here? They're usually used in emergency type of situations where you need a quick water source. It's not recommended to use, they only have a six to eight year life span. Um, but if you need a quick source, they're uh, something that you can uh, install and use very quickly. Um, here's a picture of some plastic tanks and, and usually they're uh, close to where the water source is and it could be a well and you have a pump that'll pump into it and, or you could pump into it and then you have a pump that uh, can pump out of it or if it's up on a stand, you can see there's a, a windmill there that pumps the water into the tank and then from there gravity would feed it out. So there's different ways you can use tanks uh, to store the water and then give you the supply you need. These are different types of pumps. There's a centrifugal, um, centrifugal pump and then a piston type of pump. The uh, piston pump is, uh, gives you a very constant, it's a positive uh, displacement where um, you don't have fluctuations in pressure. Uh, whereas the centrifugal uh, can be uh, variable depending on the flow of water coming in, if that varies. Um, so, but probably the most common pumps are these centri uh, centrifugal pumps. And um, they're fairly expensive, fairly pricey. Uh, of course, you wouldn't use one of these type of pumps for a, uh, uh, for a well. Um, I believe the piston type you can use in some uh, shallow wells. I'm not sure of the specs on that, so you'd have to you know, check with the suppliers, but these are two kinds of pumps that are commonly used. And here's a little bit of a diagram of a setup if you've got a pump 
Um, I know the edge of that picture is kind of cut off, but we don't really need to see that. So you've got your supply, your tank, and then it comes through a pipe, um, and you have a pump that's diagram with the little uh, triangle inside. You have a check valve. What a check valve does is it uh, prevents the water from backflowing. So it keeps it. So you might be pumping it up, you know, a distance. And if you didn't have that check valve when the motor was off or the power failed, it'll all just start going gravity, you know, feeding back down. Uh, so the check valve prevents that from happening. There's a pressure switch which detects the pressure, which can tell the pump to turn on when the pressure is low and turn off when it gets to the threshold that you set it at. And then there's a gauge so that you can read what that is and that helps you set the pressure switch. Um, there's a drain if you need to drain it. Um, and then a, an on-off valve. And this pressure tank is just a, a chamber that basically takes the, uh, the shock out of the, have you ever seen a water system, you turn on a tap and there's all this vibrating and you know, uh, it will help eliminate the, the, the vibrations. And also the uh, pressure tank helps maintain a, a more even uh, pressure and flow because um, it, it, it compresses air inside of it and so that compressed air keeps it flowing even when it you know, turns off for a, a period of time. So that's usually uh, it's commonly used with uh, a pump setup. So now we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, types of things that you will need uh, for a garden setup, um, and even for your own drinking water. If you if you have a well or you have some other source, you're going to need a filter. And um, I found that the disc type of filter is the most efficient type of a, a filter in that. Um, you can, you don't have to clean it so frequently. There's, um, this is a disc filter and there are ones that you can get that are called screen filters. And there's another diagram I'll show you um, after this one that shows a, uh, um, a kind of an expanded view of the uh, disc so you can see how they work. But uh, screen filter is just basically a tube with a screen around it and they block up fairly quickly because they have a, a very small surface area whereas these disc filters have a much larger surface area for uh, filtration. And um, there are other type of um, filters like sand filters. In larger uh, agricultural applications, they'll use these sand filters and the water goes through the sand and um, they're even more efficient. So, uh, but for a home setup or a small operation, these types of filters are what you want. Um, so here's the expanded uh, view of the discs. So you can see that they, they have these little grooves all the way around the, the circumference going to the inner uh, circumference and when they're compressed together they just have the right opening but there's just so many of them that um, they prevent the particles from getting through and some of these systems that are a little bit more expensive like this one actually have a system where the, uh, they can uh, open up and then a, a, a jet of water can, from the inside, actually will clean them. So they're self-cleaning. Uh, they're probably a, quite a bit more expensive of a setup. Um, but cleaning filters, if you've got a lot of debris coming through, you probably want a system like this because it's a lot of work to do. And usually when they block up, it's at the most inconvenient time. <laughs> you've got so many other things that are uh, demanding your time. So um, self-cleaning filters. The next thing you're going to need is a pressure regulator. If you have a pump, uh, if you have um, even 
depends on your gravity system, uh, how much pressure, but uh, if you're using a drip tape, uh, which I'm going to show you next, it has a maximum uh, pressure of about probably one bar or 15 psi before it ruptures. You can get thicker ones uh, that will handle more, but the thicker you go, the more expensive they are. And so typically, at least in the States, the thinner ones are used uh, more commonly. So pressure regulators, they come in, this is a one that's probably about a, well, it's a two inch, which is about 50 millimeters in diameter, and it has four little valves that regulate the pressure. You can get ones that are small, that'll just screw straight onto a, a tap. And so typically, what would your pressure be on a tap here? Uh, 1.5 bar or something like that? What's, I don't know what your regular pressure is, but um, so it will reduce it down to what it needs to be. Um, this is a picture on our farm and, at Weimar, and um, you can see the drip tape laid out above. These are sweet potato, and um, the drip tape goes along, and, and, and you can get a, the drippers at different spacing, but typically about 150 millimeters is, is what we commonly use. And it, uh, the maximum length we've had, 300, well, let's see, what would that be in meters? 100 to 150 meters, depending on the, the, the flow rate of the drippers, and the spacing, uh, the lower the flow and the, 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 the greater distance you can, you can um, irrigate with and the, uh, the, the greater the distance between the drippers also. So we usually, we can go up to about 350 feet, which is a little over 100 meters with, um, with the drip tape and it will give an even supply all the way along without you know, a reduction being at the other end. And, um, it's really cool because um, you just give water to the root zone of the plants that you want to be cultivating. In between, the water's not there because you don't want to soak the, the whole ground and it makes your weeding so much easier because the weeds need water too and they will only grow in the water zone um, along the row of the plants and so it makes it easier to uh, keep your weeds down. Here you can see um, the uh, plants growing there, but I just wanted to point out here, this, this pipe along here, so you, your pressure regulator is connected to this pipe, and this pipe is called a manifold, and it, um, you can get them in different sizes down to maybe um, somewhere around 20 millimeters up to, uh, they make them, I think the largest ones I've seen have been about 100 millimeters in, 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 in diameter. And they're thin-walled plastic. They're uh, designed to be low pressure. So your pressure regulator takes your pressure down. So if, it, if it's too high, it'll just rupture. It'll burst. I've had those things burst, and they go off like a cannon. Um, so you have the, uh, the supply, and then you have fittings that actually connect into. You have to have a, a tool that just cuts a little hole in it. And usually you'll do that when there's pressure in the pipe. Uh, make the <coughs> hole, put the connector, and then the drip tape um, you know, is laid out. Um, we usually, uh, like when we're planting the sweet potato, we want to get water to them like straight away because they're going into dry dirt. So uh, we'll have the manifold there already with water in and as soon as we've planted a row, we connect our drip tape in and immediately they get a drink and that makes them uh, survive really well. Um, so, um, oh, this is a little video you can kind of see. We've got sweet potato, different varieties there. 
and on the other side of the ditch um, and then different melons, eggplant, um, more different melons and tomatoes and then I think on the other side there is more sweet potato you can see in the top right hand corner and um, that's the only form of irrigation we use because in California water is really really scarce we have to use it in the most efficient way possible um, and so drip tape as far as I am aware it's the most efficient use of water um, you can get sprinklers and some farmers will use these they're called wobblers and they have a, a sprinkler that kind of wobbles and they have a fairly good throw but I don't use them because uh, it, it does use more water and I don't I want to keep my weeding down to a minimum <laughs> um, so this is definitely the most um, efficient use so this statement here from the Spirit of Prophecy, I think it's book Education 111. Uh, in the cultivation of the soil, the thoughtful worker will find that treasures little dreamed of are opening up before him. No one can succeed in agricultural gardening without attention to the laws involved. The special needs of every variety of plant must be studied. Different varieties require different soil and cultivation and compliance with the laws governing each is the condition of success. The attention required in transplanting, that not even a, a root fiber shall be crowded or misplaced, the care of the young plants, the pruning and watering, the shielding from frost at night and sun by day, keeping out weeds, disease and insect pests, the training and arranging not only teach important lessons concerning the development of character, but the work itself is a means of development. So all the different needs need to be studied carefully and, and work out what the most you know effective way of uh, managing your crops these are sweet potato this picture and you can see on the right these are two different kinds but on the right you can see a nice fat one and on the left you can see a thin one water makes a big difference and um, if you get insufficient water they can be small they'll end up being small uh, the other thing is they can end up being small and long because they are a root and they're looking for water and uh, often when you go to dig them out of the ground if you haven't given them enough water you dig down and uh, you snap them off because they've gone down into the hard pan down below to get their water needs uh, met um, so give you know learning the the right amount can make the the difference between a, a nice big yield nice size or um, small uh, sizes the other issue with watering is um, when you grow your tomatoes uh, cracking is a very common issue with uh, tomatoes and uh, especially if you're growing the heirloom types that are very thin skinned um, and it's it's really a watering issue it's, uh, uh, that needs to be dealt with. The other common problem with tomatoes is blossom end rot. Do you guys see that around here? Um, and that is a watering issue as well and, and, and what the cause of it is a lot of people will say, well, just they're, they're lime deficient and therefore you're going to put more lime on the ground. It's actually, it could be, but in most cases it's that the tomato plant, when it's um, flowering and setting fruit, at that stage the plant is going to look happy and healthy. It doesn't look like it's water deficient or anything, but um, actually it doesn't have enough water to pull up the amount of calcium that it needs at that stage of growth and the flowers will actually, uh, as they're setting fruit, will be damaged like that and then as the fruit grows then the, the, the bottom, you know, the, the blossom end rot grows with the fruit. 
and then if you're growing for a living you can't sell it and it's uh, a loss to you. you. If you're growing at home you can cut it off and still use it. But So if you get your watering right you end up with nice even uh, beautiful tomatoes that don't have cracks and don't have the blossom end rot. So what I'm going to share with you now is a little bit about uh, a tool that is available. Uh, I don't know if it's available here in Australia but now with the world market you can buy anything from overseas and get it here if it's not available locally. This instrument is called a tensiometer. Uh, it's made by a company called Irometer and um, it's readily available in America. And this tool has really changed um, the way I farm because it gives me a very accurate reading um, on what the water is in the ground. You permanently, when I say permanently, for the, for the duration of the crop that you're growing, you install it in the ground and then for the whole time it stays there and you can pull it out at the end of the growing season. But it, it, the way it works is at this end here you've got a, it's a ceramic uh, tip on it which is partially porous and then a tube that goes up. Uh, it has a vacuum gauge and then it has a chamber with a basically a, a, a valve mechanism on the top and that is filled, that tube is filled with a water with a food dye in it that gives it a colour so you can see it because if it's just straight water you might not be able to see it. And, um, and so what happens is when it dries down at the, the depth where the ceramic tip is, um, the plants are, are sucking up all the moisture there and it actually creates a tension in the soil and it starts pulling the moisture out of that tube and then it pulls a vacuum on the, on the gauge and you can read it and you, you know exactly where you know, where you need to turn the water on and, and how much tension you should allow before you turn that water on. Um, so there's one that's installed at the base of uh, some tomato plants. Um, it's not very clear, but this is the description. The tensiometer is the only direct measurement system available, which means that it actually reads the physical forces at work in the soil. Tensiometers act like a dummy root allowing the soil moisture to interact with the instrument through the ceramic tip. Soil water tension outside of the instrument tries to remove the water from it, which creates a measurable tension inside the column. This tension is read with either a mechanical gauge or a transducer, which uh, is an electrical uh, device for reading it, attached to the instrument. And so here you can see a picture of the gauge. Now depending on the type of soil that you've got, um, where you would set your, your maximum threshold before you would turn on your irrigation. So, you know, when it's between 0 and 10, that means there's heaps of water available. Uh, between 10 and 20, uh, it's still got plenty of water. But if you've got sandy soil, you're probably not going to want it to go any more than 30 before you turn your uh, water on because it will be pretty dry by the time it gets past there. If you've got a silty soil, then up to 50. If you've got clay, you can go as far as 60. Um, we have a clay soil and I don't allow it to go more than 50. So when it gets up to 50, water goes on. Now, what, what is recommended to use is two of them. So you have one for measuring the surface water and one for the deep water. Now with plants like tomatoes, their roots can go down eight feet, which is about, what, nearly three meters deep if, if, the, if there's not a hard pan that they can't get past. So a lot of times when you get the blossom end rot and the cracking problems, you think, well, I've got plenty of water, I can feel it, you know, you, you put your hands in the soil down a few, uh, you know, as far as you can go and it's nice and moist, and you think there's no issue with water. But actually it's the deep watering that they're not getting. So by having one that goes down 
probably 500, half a meter deep. Uh, and reading that, that's what really changed, um, changed things for us because I was getting the blossom end rot and cracking and that really uh, you know, becomes discouraging. As soon as I put that one down at that deep level and could see what was needed down there, the top one tells you when to turn it on. So when, when you see the top one go, you turn it on. The bottom one will still have a reading of maybe 20 or 30, but the top one gets up to 50. You turn it on, and you don't turn it off until the bottom one gets down to zero. So the bottom one kind of gives you the indication of when to turn it off. And um, once we started doing that and then learned that the, the, the uh, frequency, before I was watering like every day, we have hot days, like 40 degrees in the summertime, and, and uh, so the plants are transpiring a lot, using a lot of water. And I thought, I've got to give them water every day or they're going to be, you know, starving for water and we're going to have problems. So um, when I put, installed these with the clay, clay is very, um, uh, holds the moisture well. And um, I actually learned I didn't need to turn it on every day. I only needed to turn it on about every three and a half days as it worked out and give it a deep watering. And so instead of giving it an hour every day uh, of water with the drip tape, uh, I was turning it on every three and a half days for four to five hours and it would get the water down deep and then the blossom end rot problem went away, the cracking problems went away and it really made a big difference. So these are, this is a very valuable tool if you want to have uh, good results and good water man management. So there's a diagram, you can see the shallow one and the uh, deep one there. Um, you can use it in an orchard, you can use it um, use them, anything you're growing you can use them for. Um, when you buy it, you, you need to get a kit with it and it's called a service kit. So when you, when you fill them with water, this little uh, pump looking thing here is actually for pulling a vacuum in there and it sucks all the bubbles because the bubbles are going to be uh, in there and if you don't do that the gauge is not going to work so you have to pull a vacuum and it comes with a little bottle of food dye as well. There is an electronic version that costs a lot more money. Now, I'll tell you what the cost is in the US. I have no idea what it would be over here. But the, the previous model, um, these kind of mechanical ones, um, they range from probably 70 or $80 up to a little over $100, depending on the length of them. Um, that's US dollars. Now, this one here, uh, sorry, the uh, electric one or the electronic one, um, costs 200 and some dollars and the, these little ceramic um, uh, probes that you install at different depths uh, they cost 30 or 35 dollars each and so once you buy the original uh, you know the, 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 the reading unit you, it's quite inexpensive, it's cheaper than buying multiple mechanical ones, but you've just got to be willing to make the investment in the, um, in the meter. So with these ones, you install them, you have the wires come out, and with the meter, they've got little alligator clips on the end, and you can just clip them onto the wires, and then you'll get a reading, and, and that'll tell you um, when to turn it on and when to turn it off. So these work really well. As they're another choice. And then on the, the uh, mechanical ones, you can actually get uh, a meter there with uh, an electronic uh, signal that um, can work to turn your valves on. You can preset them to, to where you want it to turn on automatically. So if you've got solenoid valves, 
you can set it up so you don't even have to go and look at it, it'll just turn on when it's uh, needed. So here's a picture of what solenoid valves look like if you haven't seen them before. They just have a little magnetized uh, solenoid that, that opens a, uh, a valve. They're usually diaphragm type of valves and um, they're readily available. They're fairly inexpensive. But probably if you're setting up an automated uh, system, it'll cost you a fair bit of money to get all the different components because you're not just going to need one of these, you'll need multiple of them and um, so on. Uh, I don't know what happened here. My original, I had a picture there. If you go to this website there, it's a uh, California government uh, website, they actually have soil moisture guidelines. So if you can't afford to buy these things and you just want to do it the old-fashioned way, you can actually get the soil and um, get it and then squash it into a ball in your hand like this and then um, and then throw it away and look at your hand and based on the staining that the soil leaves on your hand you can basically figure out how much moisture is the ideal moisture so that the darker the stain it's got more water the less stain the less water so you do want to have a little bit of a stain uh, but that's a way of kind of gauging it if you want to do it without um, and so they have a nice chart that has the different soil types and the sort of indicators that, um, that you're looking for. And this is my last slide here. Um, we started using, uh, two years ago, using plastic mulch with all of our crops except for our greenhouse uh, crops. And uh, there's an implement on the back of the tractor that lays it out and um, rolls it out and, and scoops the soil on the edges of it to keep it in place and it actually creates a little bit like a raised bed about 100 millimeters high <coughs> and um, it lays a, a, the drip tape underneath and um, by putting this this plastic mulch on it is the plants love it because what happens with when you normally have the uh, drip tape on the surface that water typically wants to go down and a lot of it evaporates off the surface but with the plastic mulch there it actually allows the water to wick out to the edges of the plastic so you get a, a nice wide zone of topsoil that stays moist because it's not evaporating off and the plant roots can grow out into that and they just flourish. They do really, really well in the plastic mulch. Uh, it's also nice for starting early in the season. Um, this particular black mulch, the black attracts the heat and so if you're starting early and it's still a bit cold, it helps warm the soil up. And so um, that, the, uh, some of the you know, heat-loving plants, you can start them quite a bit earlier with that. There is another type of plastic mulch that you can get. Uh, you can get them in different colors. Um, I experimented with one this year that was silver. And what it does is it reflects the light. So as your crops are growing over the plastic, the light comes through, hits the plastic and reflects up underneath the leaves. And uh, while I didn't see any difference in the growth of the plants, for aphids and, and pests, they don't like to be in the light. They want to hide under the shadow of the, of the leaves. Well, the light coming under there, I had two plantings right, you know, close to each other. And the ones that were planted on the, on the uh, silver plastic didn't have any aphids or pests. Whereas the ones with the black had aphids and, you know, and had the, the pest problem. So, it's not good for uh, early plantings because the silver color actually by reflecting the light means the soil is cooler. So in the summertime if you're wanting to grow crops that are like cool weather crops, kale and you know these sorts of things, you could plant them in the silver and it keeps the soil cooler and they will like it and you'll have less you know, pest pressure with them. 
So um, plastic mulch really works. So if you're doing it on a home garden scale, there is probably different types of plastic. This comes uh, on a roll that's like 4,000 feet long, you know, so it's um, a lot more than you'd want for a home garden. But I'm sure there are things like landscape fabric and different types of materials that you could use in a home setting. And you just lay it out and put some soil on the edges and hold it in place and um, it would work nicely. So these are a few tips that um, I put together that would be helpful as far as effectively using water and, and uh, so on. I don't know how much time we have. I guess our time is just about up. But does anyone have any questions uh, from, from this? Any, uh, I can't say that I'm an expert in this. I'm just sharing with what, what we do and what works for us. And we're in a very dry, very dry climate. But I know people in a, in a um, climate similar to this that use plastic mulch and have really good results. In fact, uh, my friends in New Zealand who, who farm quite a big area of market garden, they actually use the plastic mulch. They have no drip tape because there's enough groundwater there that the plants just go down and, and you know, pull the moisture up. And, and so it just is a weed control uh, thing for them and they have really good results growing melons and so on. Did you have a question, Ju yeah, uh, Judy? In, in the area that I live, everybody wants to come and live there. And mm -hmm. Of course, you know, all of the acreage is mm -hmm. quite expensive. Mm -hmm. and, and also you're looking for um, acreage that's got a creek on it. Yeah, yeah. That's never water in it. Mm -hmm. um, how have you found, you know, God providing for our needs, you know, in mm -hmm. those cases where because none of us want to go and sit there. No, right. We're the council against having mm -hmm. a little step again mm -hmm. uh, over our heads. Um, just, just from your experiences and what you've read and how has the Lord provided those white spots, you know, for us to be able to pick up? Because we need right. to purchase <laughs> So how does the Lord provide it without it costing you an arm and a leg when you don't have the money, right? Um, yeah, you know, I've heard different testimonies. Actually, in our conferences that we have in the States, we have a testimony time on Sabbath afternoon, and so people come and they share their testimony of you know how the Lord has led them and what you know how He's blessed them, and I've heard some of them talk about how the Lord led them to a, to get a piece of property for so cheap, you know, and just through prayer, just asking and waiting on Him and and looking for His providences. So prayer is probably the big key, you know, uh, and just wait on Him. Sometimes we're in such a hurry that we want to have it now, that, you know, we end up paying for it. So. Uh, waiting on God is, is really the key. So more than that, I can't really say. <laughs> yes, brother. I was going to say, I worked at a avocado farm. Yes, yes. And they had 300 trees, and they had these tensiometers under each tree. And wow. you go around just, you know, you had it all irrigated and stuff. Yeah. just switch the switch. But you knew when to water by these devices. Yes. And found them quite efficient. Yeah, and avocados are sensitive to too much water, having yeah, phytophthora. Yeah. Right, yeah, so that would be really handy to keep it yeah. just right. Sure. Yeah, it really changed the way we farm. Really did, and 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 it made our income much much higher because of the you know you're not losing all those you know fruits. Is there a lot of variability in which plants you know, how much water each each type? Yes. Yes. And you learn from experience, and, and um, so just give you a couple of examples. We grow a lot of sweet basil, basil, get used to talking <laughs> down under uh, language. Um, so we grow a lot of it, um, and what I've been discovering over the years is they like a lot of water, 
and um, and I'll have them on the same system as like the tomatoes, and it seems like they actually like more than sometimes the tomatoes like. So, um, but most plants don't like too much, so it's a matter of just gauging how much. So you have to experiment a little bit, and uh, and by observation and when you've got an instrument like the tensiometer, you you can gauge it exactly. And just so, respond that how you set up your plumbing so you can kind of control which sections get. Yeah, exactly, and that that would take a you know another seminar to kind of get into the details of how to figure that out. But um, yeah, you have to gauge what size pipes to supply the volume. You can calculate it out if you're using drip tape. You can you know the exact lengths, the number of number of them, and how much each emitter of flows. You can you can you know compile that together and have the total and know that that's the flow rate that you need and then find out what size pipe. So there's calculations and if you go to an irrigation supply place, they probably would help you figure that out too. Yeah, they want the money, so <laughs> they usually will help you. Any other uh, questions or comments? Okay, well, let's just pray and we'll, uh, we'll close. Dear Father in Heaven, thank you that you are so interested in helping us to uh, succeed and and uh, thank you that you have supplied water in just such an amazing way. When we see the water systems of evaporation, how water flows into the ocean, evaporates and gets dropped back on the hills and how there are underground streams. And you've just given us supplies of water to meet our needs. And we just want to praise you and thank you for that. And uh, Father, give each of us the wisdom we need to uh, tap into this resource that you have given us. And may we always give you praise and, and be grateful for these blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.